I must, I must confess something. I've, uh, I've been talking about the sermon that I'm preaching today with my, with my wife and our, and our guests, maybe even a few of you this week, and I've just you know, kind of been, been meditating over it, and, and I've been saying stuff like, you know, well, this, this, this sermon's probably a little different than the sermon that I preach, because I, I, I try my hardest sometimes to be, to, to be pretty practical um, when I preach, try to, try to keep it um, just pretty applicable and applicable, and, and, um, and, I, and I felt like this sermon was going to be not that, which is so wrong. This sermon might be the most practical sermon that I've ever preached. This sermon might be the most important sermon I've ever preached. Because this morning, I have the privilege and the honor and the joy of preaching the explicit gospel. As I look around the world, I see disunity, I see hatred, I see, you know, we, we can look around, we see murder, we see racism, we see um, marriages that are hurting, marriages that are falling apart, we see anxiety, we see depression, we see a lack of joy, we see hurt, we see confusion. We see it all. We see violence. We see, if we're not careful, we see nothing but despair. Oh, and dear friends, for a world that's hurting, for people that are hurting, there is nothing more practical than to hear the gospel. That is what this world needs. And I don't care who you are or how you're walking in this room this morning, whether you've been walking with Christ for 30, 40, 50 years, whether you don't know Jesus Christ at all, whether your marriage is going great or whether your marriage is in the toilet, whether your heart is full of joy or whether your heart is in the depth of despair, friend, I know this morning you need to hear the gospel. So I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad that I get to preach this message this morning. What a joy. What a joy. This is a very broad topic that we will deal with this morning. And as I've prepared it, there's times that I felt like I'm a little all over the place. Maybe you're like, you're always all over the place. But this morning I feel maybe I'm a little more all over the place. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would work this morning. That he would make sense of what I'm saying in your heart. That he would move in your heart to trust Christ more, to love Christ more, and to worship Christ more. Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. As we continue, I'm going to read verses 18 through 22. That is the passage I'll be preaching this morning. So please follow along as I read. Luke 9, 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. 
Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. May God bless the reading of his word. My main point this morning is this. The Messiah came to suffer for us, die for us, and rise so that we may live. The Messiah came to suffer for us, to die for us, and rise so that we may live. Point one, it's, point one, it's, it's important to define terms. I want us to see that this morning. It is important to define terms. We kind of we see this in verses 18 through 20. Now, I, if you remember last week, I, I started to preach some of this passage. I finished my sermon with it. And I said that we'd get a little more into it this week, and we will. But as you remember last week, Jesus, he fed the 5,000. 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. However many were actually there, because again, they only counted the men. But Jesus did this miracle that was in all four Gospels, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. He, he fed a giant crowd with five loaves and two fishes. Five and two. He created food, ex nihilo, out of nothing from his hand and, and miraculously fed this crowd. It was a glorious moment. It was a splendid moment, a, a display of, of Christ's supernatural holiness, his glory right there. It was amazing. And then Jesus comes to verse 18 and verse 19, and he's talking with his disciples right after this giant crowd he ministers to, and he says, who are the people saying that I am? A moment right after Christ reveals his glory. Who do they say that I am? The same thing they The crowd said that he was in verses 7 through 9 before he did the miracle. (laughs) The miracle didn't seem to have an effect on the crowds. At least not the effect that Jesus intended. The crowds here, they say John the Baptist, Elijah, others prophets of old. Incorrect answer. Jesus didn't come as John the Baptist. Jesus didn't come as Elijah. Jesus didn't come as the prophets of old. Jesus came as the Messiah. That's who he came. And, and, and if you look at, at verse 20, Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? He's asking his disciples. Those disciples who were the ones who picked up 12 baskets full of leftover bread, each one for themselves, and, and gazed and understood at that point, I believe that that. Jesus was the Christ of God, the anointed one of God, the one promised in the Old Testament, the the Messiah that would come, the one promised in Genesis chapter 3, the one that the Lord would send to take away the sin of, of the world, the Christ of God. What a great confession here. The the problem is with Peter. As we will see through the next few weeks, 
I don't exactly think that Peter understood what he was saying. Fully. Not fully. Partially, yes, but, but not quite fully. Their idea of the Messiah was one that would come and obliterate Rome. To defeat all of God's enemies and all of God's people's enemies and bring them into the kingdom and where it's perfection and glory, where Christ would reign. And yes, that is what the Messiah will do. Amen. Amen. That wasn't a wrong expectation. That is a good expectation. That is a right expectation. That is an expectation based upon God's word. The problem is that this confession, if that is the only thing that you thought of the Messiah, it's incomplete. It's, insu- it's insufficient. There was something that Christ had to do first. And upon this confession of Christ, Jesus being the Christ of God, the Messiah, Jesus reveals what the Messiah must do. The very first thing that's important to understand about the Messiah, about Jesus, the Christ of God, is what he would do. But before we get there, I must ask the question to each of you out there. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Maybe you believe that Jesus was simply a good teacher. That he had some things in life that he shared that were helpful to society. Maybe serving your neighbor, maybe loving your neighbor, be, being a good person. This was important to not chase money and chase things. You, you think that Jesus was just, he was just a good teacher, a good philosopher. Maybe you think that Jesus was just a good religious man, that he came to, to teach people pure religion, good, good religion. He was just a good pastor. Maybe you think that Jesus just, just came to uh, provide health and wealth and, and fix social problems with the world. But friend, understand this. We will all have to answer who it is we say Jesus is. Each one of you. According to God's word, and I believe this is God's word with all of my heart, I would die for that. I would give my life for it right now. That this is the word of the living God. And you must answer that question. The good news is, friends, that that answer is found in God's word. So what was the most important thing that Jesus first wanted them to know about Jesus being the Christ? We see this in verses 21 through 22. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
The most important thing that Jesus wants them to know first and foremost about the Messiah isn't, hey, I've come to obliterate Rome. That wasn't it. Confession of Christ, here's the most important thing. It's this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chiefs, priests and scribes. He, he must be killed and he must rise on the third day. Not the Son of Man will suffer many things, will be killed, and will rise from the grave on the third day. Not might suffer, might be killed. Not could suffer, could be killed. Friends, must. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be killed. Out of necessity, the Son of Man must suffer. Lead into that word there. He must. It was necessary. Necessary that, he, that this would happen. Which begs the question, why? Why? Why did Christ have to suffer? Why must he suffer? Why was it necessary? Above all else, why was it completely necessary that Christ would suffer, that he would die, and then he would be raised from the dead? It wasn't an option. It was the only option. Why? Now, I, I have only so much time this morning. But in our time that we have, I, I, I know that there, there can be some very, 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 very broad answers to that question. We could spend months on just the fact that why did Christ have to suffer? Months on why he had to die. And months on why he had to be raised. So I know this morning what I will say is insufficient. And I know for the rest of our lives, if, if, if I have the honor of, of ministering alongside of this church for, for the rest of my life, we will spend the rest of our lives unpacking this truth. But in our time this morning, I want to, as frail as I am, hope to communicate why Christ had to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And so I want to narrow our scope a little bit. And I, I want to narrow, narrow the scope to, to understand why Jesus came. Because if we understand why Jesus came, then we can understand why he had to suffer, why he had to die, and why he had to be raised on the third day. Now, Jesus is very clear on why he came. If we open up God's word, if we read the gospels, as we continue through Luke and we continue through the epistles, we'll understand this, that Christ is very clear. For instance, uh, if you've got the handout, I've got a ton of references. And so you, you can look at these verses. You don't need to, you don't need, you, if you don't have the handout, you can just write them down in your notes. But, but, but I want you to hear Straight from the word of God, why Jesus came. And in John 6, 38, Jesus says that he came to do the will of the one who sent him. So Jesus came on mission from the Father. By the Father's command, the Father sent the Son to do what? Well, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, it says this, that Christ Jesus came in the world to what? To save sinners. Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission. 
Where we see that, we see this all throughout the Word. Titus 2.14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 12, 27, Jesus says, But for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is my purpose. What was that? To die. But Jesus came. Luke 19, 10 says this, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Is it clear, church, why Jesus came? He came to save sinners. He came to save the lost. His primary Purpose, friends, is a rescue mission. That was it. That's why he came. Now he will come again. (laughs) He will come again. And it's not a rescue mission. Oh, it's not a rescue mission. But this time it was a rescue mission. He came to redeem a people, to save a people. Therefore, We must ask, bringing it back to our Luke 9 here, what does suffering, what does death, and what does resurrection have to do with seeking and saving the lost? What does suffering and death and resurrection have to do with redeeming us from lawlessness? These are questions that I would like to spend the next moments answering. When we, when we speak of Christ saving sinners, again, that's his purpose, that's his point in coming. When we speak of Christ saving sinners, there's a theological word that, that, that we often like to use. If you want to write it down, it's, it's, it's called atonement. It's called atonement. Now, we get this word atonement from the Old Testament, uh, that where blood atoned for the, uh, for the sin of, of the Israelites through, through sacrifice, we this is, this is a very biblical word. It's not just a theological word. It's a very, very biblical word. There's a lot of words that we all use this morning that, that aren't necessarily found in the word, but they're you know, used by theologians. This one is straight from God's word. But Wayne, Wayne Grudem defines atonement as this. The work Christ did in life and death to earn our salvation. Say it again. Wayne Grudem defines atonement as the work Christ did in life and death to earn our salvation. Do you hear that at the end there? He earned our salvation. He earned it. Christ saved sinners by earning it. He did it. Christ earned our salvation. Your salvation. If you are saved, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning... Your salvation can can in no way, shape, or form be attributed to your work at all. Not at all. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You sinned. You fell short of the glory of God. That is your role in your salvation. If you are saved, it is because Christ accomplished it. We kind of get this idea in John 3, 16 through 7. We, we, we know these verses. For God so 
loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In these short few verses, we see God's motive. God's motive to save sinners. You think, why? Why would God choose to save sinners? After all, these individuals, they sinned against God. They sinned against the holy God, a, a righteous God, a perfect God, a loving God, an all-powerful God. But yet God, out of his own loving kindness, out of his own character, out of his own holiness, decides to love a people. And because he loves, he desires to save people. His motivation is love. You think about the process, the process of salvation is, is that he gave his son. He sent his son, and if we go down to the end of 17, in order that the world might be saved through him. He gave his son, skip down, so the world might be saved through him. We are saved through Christ. We are saved in Christ. We are saved by Christ. How is this received? How is this salvation received, being saved by, by the grace of God? It's, it's by believing. Believing in him. What does it mean to believe in him? You ever ask yourself that? Talking with my sons recently, talking about salvation. He says, but dad, what's it mean to believe? You ever wonder that? You ever read this? What's it mean to believe in him? It's to believe who he says he is. And that he did what he said he would do. It's casting yourself fully on the grace of God. And understanding that Christ paid it all. He did it all. There's nothing you can do. We are saved through him. So if we are saved through Christ, hear me church, if we are saved through Christ, how does that work? How does that work? Through a process, a view of the atonement, again, the, the act of the Lord earning our salvation that, that theologians often like to call penal substitution. It's a big word. What it means is this, that Christ is our substitute. Christ is our substitute. He took on the full penalty of God's sin for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Penal substitution, right? Write, write that word down. We needed a substitute. You could not save yourself. Even if you wanted to save yourself, you could not save yourself. You couldn't. You were incapable. You were unworthy to save yourself. You, do you understand that? Even if you wanted to try to be a good enough person in order to earn, you couldn't do it. I couldn't. God didn't just send his son to earth for the heck of it. He had to. If he, out of love, if he wanted to save a people, it was necessary to send the sinless, perfect son of God to be a substitute on your behalf. Because this, listen, in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, it says, For as by death, or for as 
by a man came death. It also says this, for as in Adam all die. There's a big problem here. We had a substitute really, 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 really early at the beginning of time named Adam. God's first created being, Adam. And Eve, then the garden, the Lord puts them in a spot of perfection and in his glory and, 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 they, and they walked sinless and, and, and it was perfect. And then he gave them one rule, don't eat of the sin of, uh, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, for if you do, you will die. Adam made the decision that each and every one of us would make. And he ate. He ended the garden. Therefore, our whole world is cursed, is under the curse of sin. And then as in, because of that, all men die. All men die. We're all deserving of death. We are all under the curse. And if you think, that's not fair. I wouldn't have done that. Why am I judged by Adam's sin? Why am I under a curse because of Adam's sin? I'll remind you that of what God's word says in Romans 3, 10 through 11. None is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Friend, if you were in the garden, you would have sinned. You would have. You are not just a sinner because of Adam. You are a sinner because you sin. And apart from Christ, that is all you do is sin and rebel against God. Period. We needed a substitute to do what we could not do. The substitute needed to be perfect to fully to fully obey God's law. In Matthew 3.15, Jesus, Jesus in his baptism, he, he speaks of, of his desire to fulfill all righteousness. It was necessary that, that, that the, the Christ, the substitute, would fulfill all of God's righteous decrees. We speak of, in, in a theological term, we speak of Jesus' active obedience, his, his life and his choices and his mission all satisfied the law, the requirements of the law. He was perfect. He was sinless. Not one sinful thought. Not one sinful motive. Not one. You understand that? He never once, never once looked at a woman with lust in his eyes. Never once gossiped. Of course he didn't murder. But his heart was pure and his heart was holy. In, Jesus, in Jeremiah 23, 6, we, we, Jeremiah speaks of, of this one to come. And, and he describes, ultimately, who would be Jesus, that the Lord would be our righteousness. We needed someone to be our righteousness. To be our righteousness for us. To meet God's standard for us. Because we never could. We were unable and unwilling 
But not just that, we needed a substitute to satisfy God's wrath for us. Because we are sinners, we deserve the wrath of God. Therefore, Jesus, well, I know it's a very long intro. Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to be raised again. Next point, Christ had to suffer. As we think about this, as we think about this substitute who would come and, and to be our representative, to, to be our substitute, to earn salvation for us, Christ had to suffer because we deserve to suffer. Christ had to suffer because we deserve to suffer. As we open God's word, we understand that sin always involved suffering. Always. From the moment of the first sin where Adam and Eve are laying naked, hiding from God in their shame, until now sin always involves shame and suffering. Always. Always. We see the curse of sin in Genesis 3, that, that all creation was cursed. You, you, you wonder why women, you have pain in childbirth? It's because of suffering. Men, you notice why your jobs are toil and you hate it? It's because of suffering, because of sin. You know why your marriage is a wreck? It's because of sin. You know why there's racism? Because of sin. You know why there's hatred? Because of sin. You know why you love laziness rather than hard work? It's because of sin. You know why there can be problems within our church body? It's because of what? Not because of Christ. Because of sin. Every problem in your life, every problem in your life, without exception, is because of sin. The cosmic curse of sin. But ultimately, in the midst of the curse of sin that Christ brought about because of Adam's sin and Eve's sin, Jesus offers a promise of hope. Promise of hope. And he offers grace to Adam and Eve. And in that moment of, of this covenant promise that, that, he would, that he would bring about one who would destroy the curse of sin, he sacrifices an animal for them. He brings a covering for them. As they stand there naked and ashamed, there in Genesis 3, God covers them with animal skins, the very first sacrifice. This animal was slayed, was killed. Right there, we see that sin results in what? Death and suffering. We go to Leviticus 17, as the Lord gives the law. It is by blood that makes atonement by the life. In Hebrews 9.22, we, we read this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's not simply that something had to die. It's something that had to be sacrificed. Sacrifice then involves punishment. Sacrifice involves suffering. There was suffering necessary because of sin. To satisfy the wrath of God, suffering had to happen. 
Not just a nice long life and then you die. But suffering. Real suffering. Because of our sin, and you because of your sin, we deserve to suffer. Well, we look at our lives and we, we, we think, oh, we look at when bad things happen to us. Talking really bad things. We say, I just don't deserve this. Friend, we do. We do. We deserve that and far more. We deserve the holy wrath of God. I deserve it. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You and your sin, friend, deserve the wrath of God, the perfect, just, white-hot wrath of God. That is what you deserve. That is what you deserve. Oh, but friends, there's good news. There's good news. In Galatians 3.13, we read this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Turn in your Bibles. I do want you to turn here. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. As we think of the necessity of, of Christ's suffering, the, the necessity of, of the Messiah suffering, one of the things that, that comes to mind is this picture of, of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, 2, it says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression, my people. Oh, friends, do you, do, do you, do you see these words? Do you see the picture of our suffering servant? Yes, he was stricken. Yes, he was pierced. Yes, he was crushed. Yes, he was despised. Yes, he was rejected. Yes, he was killed. Yes, he bore sin. Yes, he bore the wrath of God. But do you see why? He bore our grief. He didn't just bear grief. He, bear, he bore your grief. He was pierced for your transgressions. Do you see this? He was chastised to bring your peace. And by his wounds, his suffering, his body that was pierced, his body that was broken, friends, you are healed. The suffering that you deserved. The suffering that was necessary. Christ accomplished. I said the suffering that you deserved, Christ accomplished. He accomplished it on the cross. Where he was bitten, where he was, he was beaten. Where he was stripped naked. Where nails pierced his hands, pierced his feet. Where he stood on the cross, he hung there, rejected by the scribes and elders, as he says was necessary. But not just rejected by the elders and the scribes and the priests. He was rejected by his closest disciples who denied him and who fleed. And in that moment on the cross, God's wrath that we deserve, the suffering that we deserve, God poured it out in full force upon his son. And he experienced that. Not with anyone holding his hand by his side. He experienced it alone, friends. What you deserve. That is what you deserve. That is what I deserve. To suffer for my sin. But Christ did it. Christ did it. Our Savior was put on a cross and suffered for us to save us. Amen. But two, Christ didn't just have to suffer. Christ had to die because we deserved death. Oh, you don't just deserve a hard life, bad relationships, sickness, hating your job, a bad marriage. Friend, because of your sin, you deserve death. You deserve it. We see this in Romans 6, 23. 
For the wages of sin is death. The punishment for your sin is this. It's death. Again, we go back to Genesis 2.15 and 2.16 as the Lord tells Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you shall surely die. Death. Eternal death. Eternal suffering. True death is what you deserve. That is what the Lord promises. We read in the Second Thessalonians 1, 6-9, we talk about this ultimate death, this ultimate suffering. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, since indeed God considers it just to, rep- to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he's coming again, not to save, but to judge. And here's what he will do. He's coming in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance and suffering on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that's you this morning. You don't know Christ. You don't know the gospel. You reject Christ. According to God's word here, you know what it says? Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal. You will not be annihilated. It's not going to be a quick, immediate death and all of a sudden you're over. I can just take that really quick and and I'm just, I turn to dust for eternity. No, dear friends, death for all of eternity. All of eternity. Eternal destruction. But here's the worst part away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Eternal destruction away from the presence of God. We need, we needed someone to bear the curse for us and to reconcile us to God. That is what we need. And friends, that is what Christ did. That is what Christ did. We, we read this in Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die but God shows his love for us that while we were sinners while we were enemies while we hated God when we were at our worst when we were walking as fast and as far and as hard as we could away from God dear friends Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God For in while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see that? Reconciled to God. Not away from his presence for eternity, dear friends. But by the death of Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are reconciled by his death. That's what his death accomplished. Accomplished the wrath of God for us. And it reconciled us. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
What's that say more than that? We also rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice because of the death of Christ. We rejoice in what he accomplished for us. We rejoice that we are saved through him. That is the most natural response. And if it's not, we don't understand the gospel. Jesus, he fully, fully, fully satisfied the wrath of God for us. Not partially. Not halfway. Jesus did not invite you to meet him halfway. Jesus did not invite you to split the bill. Jesus didn't say, I got the check, you leave the tip. Jesus paid it all. All. And he fully satisfied the wrath for us. We use this theological word, um, expiation. That he paid the full penalty of our sin. He paid the full penalty of our sin. We also use this word, it's propitiation. This is a word we find in, in 1 John 4.10. Propitiation means that the wrath of God is fully satisfied. Expiation is that he paid the full punishment, the full, the full wrath of God. He paid it all. Therefore, there is propitiation. Propitiation comes from expiation. We understand that. Because God's wrath has been paid, the punishment of our sin has been paid, every penny, the wrath of of God is satisfied. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, friends, the wrath of God has been satisfied. The punishment has been paid. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you need not fear. There is no, not one bit of condemnation towards you. When the devil tries to come in your midst of temptation, in your midst of sin, you tell the devil to go to hell where he belongs because your penalty has been paid in full. Three, finally, Christ had to rise from the dead so that we could live. Christ had to rise from the dead so that we could live. You're like, Brian, okay, so I get, I get, what, you're, I get what you're saying. I, I get that we needed a, we needed a, a substitute for our sin, but, but everybody still dies. Like, we're all going to eventually, like, we've seen it. We all die, Right? Yes, we all die. There will be a point in which physically we die. But at that moment, if you are in Christ Jesus, you go to be with the Lord, as his word promises us. But there comes a day where we will have new resurrection bodies and be with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. If you are in Christ Jesus, that is yours. If not, you will experience the just wrath of God for all of eternity, as I mentioned before. But how did Christ accomplish this for us? How did Christ accomplish life for us? 
We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, 22. Look, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, that was our first federal head, our first representative, by him it came death. By a man has, all, uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead, Christ, our, the true and better Adam, our substitute, the spotless lamb that was slain. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Salvation, friends, is not simply, hear this, salvation is not simply I'm not going to hell. Salvation is not simply, I'm not experiencing the wrath of God. Salvation is being reconciled to God and being with Him for all of eternity. It's living, it's true life for all of eternity. Yes. Yes, Christ took the punishment. Yes, Christ bare the wrath of God. And yes, the wrath of God is satisfied. But in Christ's resurrection, he broke the curse of the law that we might now live with him. We live. Yes, our bodies die, but we will live and we will be with him for all of eternity. And his resurrection did that for us. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live because Christ lives. We will live because Christ lives. Oh, the glory that his resurrection accomplished for us. And dear friends, hear me. If you are not in Christ Jesus, and this is the first time that you've heard this, I plead with you. I plead with you. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. You can have this hope that I speak of. You can have this peace that I speak of. You can have this joy that I speak of. You're like, I don't know, Brian. I'm not good enough. I, I, I don't know, Brian. My life's messed up. My marriage is messed up. My bank account's messed up. I've been to jail. I've done it all. Christ wouldn't want me. Friends, Christ came because of that situation. Christ had to come for all of us because we were sinners. None of us were good enough for God. None of us. Not me, not you. God loved the world so much that he gave his son that we would be saved not because of our works, we couldn't, but to be saved through him. We're not saved by works. We're saved by Christ. If you've never done that, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never trusted in Christ and, and his sacrifice on our behalf, him taking the sin, the punishment for our sin that we deserve, if you've never done that, 
Friend, let me encourage you to do it today. Don't wait. Do not wait. Trust in Christ today. No matter your past, no matter your present, dear friends, Christ is here calling you to trust in him today. He will welcome you with open arms. To the Christian right now who is deep in sin, you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you've got secret sin. You know things that you've struggled with that only you know about. And, and right now you're feeling condemned. Dear Christian, know this, that your sin has been paid for. Your sin has been paid for. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because he has already paid the punishment for our sins. There is no need for condemnation. There is no need for this overwhelming sense of guilt. Look to the cross and see what Christ accomplished. To the legalistic Christian who is weary from a life of works righteousness. See that Christ came. See that his suffering was necessary, that his death was necessary. Because you could never, ever, 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 ever work hard enough to earn God's favor. Ever. You never can. So stop trying. Look to the cross and see the grace that Christ provides. And walk in joy, knowing that Christ has accomplished it. To the hopeless Christian who looks out at the world and sees nothing but discouragement. You look at your messed up life, you looked up at the messed up lives of others. Understand this. That Christ is going to make all things right. For those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus lives And there will be a day where there is no more suffering. There will be. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? And your darkest day, and your most hopeless day, understand this, friends, that Christ has solved your biggest problem, your sin. And he did it because you couldn't. And he did it because he loves you. The world may hate you, but understand this. God loves you. Friends, I look at this and I think about this text and I cannot think of anything more practical. I cannot think of greater news in the entire world. The gospel is not something that we graduate from. The gospel is not something that is for only new believers. The gospel is what we feast on every single day as Christians. It's what we should feast on. We need this. Your marriage needs this. Your friendships need this. Our church needs this. I need this. You need this, moms. You need this, business owners. We need it all. All of us need this. Young people, you need this. Older people, you need this because it points us to our lack of sufficiency 
Oh, and the great sufficiency that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.